You're listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Mammal Watching podcast with me, John Hall from New York City. And me, Charles Foley from Minneapolis. So, John, I understand you are just about to take off on a long-awaited trip to Madagascar. Oh, I am, Charles. I was just packing. I'm uh, very excited, as you know, um, leaving at the end of the week for just over two weeks. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. And so what are your key target species for this trip? Oh, there's too many to mention, almost. Um, we're going to go to the north. Amber's coming with me and some friends. The key ones there is a blue-eyed black lemur. Mm-hmm. which is a real stunner, but there's black lemurs and there's a bunch, obviously, of mouse lemurs and things. Probably my number one target, though, is the eye-eye. Of course. Animal that we have talked about many times, so I've got mm-hmm. a couple of spots for that. Mm-hmm. Um, Fosa, I really want to see. I missed that in 2010 when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to see some of those small carnivals, yeah. like the ring-tailed mongoose and the fanaluca and the fanaluke and all those little guys. So um, yeah, it's going to be – I'm really, really excited about this trip. Um, yeah. It's such a great country, isn't it? It's, and, yeah. uh, you know, the, and the wildlife watching, there's, there's, there's not a whole lot of wilderness left, but the wildlife watching when you are in those areas tends to be really good. Yeah, so really excited for you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, well, look forward to hearing about all your adventures when you get back. I will keep you posted on route, I'm sure. But yeah, we'll talk about it more uh, when I'm home. Excellent. Charles and I are thrilled to be joined by someone who has become a legend, Christopher Scharf from from the US. Over the years, Martin Royal, who many of you will have heard as a a guest on this podcast last year, has talked about a mysterious client of his who does the most extreme mammal watching I've ever heard of. I thought I'd done some some foolish things, but there's a whole new level here of what some might call recklessness, I would say adventure, um, in his quest for, for seeing some of the most interesting wildlife on the planet. Um, Chris Scharf, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, John. Great to have you here, Chris. I'm glad that I'm considered a legend now. Absolutely. My, my, my wife of 10 years would consider me a dumb hillbilly for these things, so it's good <laughs> to get a positive spin on it these days. <laughs> you can count on us. We're all in the same right. <laughs> Thank you. That's right. <laughs> we all support each other here. <laughs> Excellent. Good. So, Chris, um, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to be a mammal watcher? Yeah, um, I mean, I grew up in the state of Michigan in northern United States, and I grew up seeing black bears and wolves and moose and, and all of the sort of American wildlife, raccoons, bobcats, all that sort of stuff. So I've always loved wildlife. I always loved going for a hike with my grandfather in the woods, take the camera and go out. It just was always around me. When I came out of high school at a time in life, where I think a lot of people are sort of ser- searching for what their purpose is or what they want to do with their time on earth. This hobby turned into sort of a bucket list of a big, long bucket list of all the coolest animals that I'd want to go see all over the world. I took a safari to Kenya to get the whole thing started in, in uh, either 91 or 92. And, you know, so 30 some years later, uh, it's just been hundreds and hundreds of, of trips all over the world to see as much wildlife and get as many of these photos as I can. It's kept me very healthy mentally. It's kept me very healthy physically. I, I perpetually have something to look forward to. I have objectives uh, in my future that I'm training for, that I'm training my body for. I'm keeping myself in physical shape, hiking up and down mountains to do. Um, so it's been as much a philosophy of my life and a guiding principle as it has been a hobby. You know, this is why I get up in the morning. This is why I bother to go to work and my job seems tedious or stressful or something. So um, it's really just 
been who I am, what I am as a person over these years. It's been quite the obsession of late. I, and I've done some really dumb, crazy, reckless things to get, achieve it. But um, that is what makes the best story. So it's been a lot of fun. And there's there's a worldly education to be had in going to as many countries as any anyone who really gets into this hobby and seeing the different cultures and the people. And even to uh, what I've really come to appreciate is when there's challenge in this and you go to some complete other corner of the planet from where you're from and you have a common goal with these people from a different culture. Um, it, it, it's just a, such a healthy way to view the world and to, to meet other people. And, and your particular focus seems to be um, photographing, actually getting photographs of some of the rarest mammals on the planet. Is that right? That is actually not correct. And I apologize here because this is where I'm going to probably speak quite a bit of blasphemy to mammal watchers. <laughs> I don't actually quite share the hobby exactly the same way that, that you guys do or that your website does. Um, for me, it's always been just the high level. What's, what's the coolest, you know, I know there to be some 10,000, whatever it is, species of birds, but I, I like to think of maybe three to 400 of them as being the, the, the highlight ones that I really want to get the pictures of. So it's not that they're rare and same thing with mammals. It's not necessarily that they're all rare or that I just want to get the rarest things. I like the highlight, the, the most important animals that really sort of stand out different. Um, the, the blasphemy part being like the little LBJs or, you know, um, how many rodents or bat pictures or, you know, at some point it's sort of variations on the theme that I'm, that may be rare. And if I happen to see something where I get it, I might put it up there, but it really isn't my motivation. It just so happens that some of what I consider to be the coolest, biggest, most unique wildlife also happens to be ridiculously rare and almost impossible to get these days or get pictures of. No, I, I have a set list of things. I routinely uh, review it with Martin. We go over it all the time to decide, you know, what is something that is distinct enough and should be gotten right now? Where's a hot lead on some rare thing that needs, you know, needs to do it right now? Um, and it's, it's morphed. The list has morphed and the priorities certainly have changed over 30 years. Um, you guys have been a big help, you know, having mammal watching, having trip reports. Um, I started before, you know, when the internet was just bulletin boards and no one listed anything on this stuff and there was no way to find most of the animals on the planet. So um, having way more people out doing it, way more information, it's shifted the hobby and made a lot of this much easier. I mean, I just couldn't agree with you more on just about everything, apart from what you said about mice, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> but um, no, I, I, listening to you talk about the way it's defined your life, I, I, I agree with every single one of those points, including the fact that it, it it, it's such a great way to travel and it you know when you meet someone else who's interested and you're out in the field with a guide you find you I find I have more in common with a pygmy in the Congo than probably someone sitting yeah. opposite me in a subway carriage just because we amazing. share this it breaks down everything um and I realize I'm obsessed when I you know if I start thinking you know what if I die in 10 years I don't the only thing I think about is how many mammals I'm going to miss. If I can't stop, right. that's all that matters. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. Like my kids, totally. or whatever, you know, whatever, they'll be fine. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I agree. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that if we sat down with your list, A, we'd be in a complete agreement about the coolness of all your things. But yeah. I bet you the mammals that you have sought and still seeking us to are the ones that Charles and I like because there's so much overlap. And because things yeah. are rare, they automatically become cool. So, yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Yeah, you're a kindred spirit, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you talked a bit about how, how this started um, yeah. and was, was there a particular moment? Was it Kenya really that you, you sat down and got this bucket list for, for the world's coolest wildlife or? Yeah, that like? was it. Um, 
that was yeah that was just so definitive that was so like i this is all i want to do this is you know i i have a degree in computer science i lived out in silicon valley i was doing websites and things and databases and desktop apps and everything you could do for 30 years but all of it refocused around that's the funding this is what i'm going to be doing with every free moment i have and because again because i just realized this is so much more healthy mentally physically just spiritually for who i am um, this is it. My, my next dream. I, I came home from that trip and without even sort of the, the, the traveler's sorrow of, oh, I, I'm home. That was so great. I'd rather be out again. It's like, no, I'm booking a ticket. I want to go see a tiger now. Like I'm on the polar bears. What, how do you get this all done? <laughs> you know, it was just immediately. And it's and it never stopped being that. It's been very obsessive for, for in, in a, I say, a positive way for, mm-hmm. for 30 years now, more than 30 years. So, yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. I know how you feel. Um so Martin, you know, we, we were talking with Martin in Spain a couple of weeks ago, and he, he ran through this incredible list of adventures and near-death experiences you've had with him and, and on your own. And just there's so many stories to choose from. Um, but one I really want to hear about was um, I understand you, you went into Afghanistan to see Malkor. Tell us more. Yeah, yeah. This is and one I of those. Just, and I should just uh, say that Markor is a goat-like antelope with the most amazing spiral horns on the males. They are. Yeah, yeah they really are. Um, I I would t- today say that everything I did was insanely stupid because I'm sure that if I'd went to your website, if it existed back then, there would have been far easier ways and safer ways to achieve this. Um, but it was more stumbling into it. I actually met I met a, a German biologist in Kazakhstan who was working on a project to get photos of the Sega antelopes there and put them up in schools around Estonia because there was a practice, I hope in history only, um, of young, young guys getting on motorbikes, chasing them down with a shotgun. And so um, just as a way to like kind of humanize them to kids in schools, we were putting, they were putting these posters with like cutesy names on them. Like, you know, my name is Bambi or whatever. Please, you know, I have a family, don't shoot me, whatever. And I thought, wait a minute, I want to get photos of those. I will happily go help you. You know, if you take me out to see them and they were getting them in zoos, but enclosures, but he, he was willing to do that. So we, we dug pits and I, cause you're very shy and it's just being open grassy fields. And we got those pictures and we were sitting around camp talking and it turns out his father had done some work on Mark war before, before Afghanistan turned war zone, even before Russia back in the day. And so he had these leads on, getting pictures of Mark Wars in northern Afghanistan, like southern Tajikistan, northern Afghanistan area. Unfortunately, my country was then bombing Afghanistan and there's, it's only you can apply for a visa and, you know, go and get pictures of animals in Taliban controlled areas or whatever. So um, even to getting a visa to Tajikistan at the time was very difficult. You have to you have an invitation letter, which we had faked. We, you have to have a whole trip, which is all faked, um, a hotel in, um, uh, you know, in the capital city with bird watching tours, I think I had a, a some kind of music thing, like a symphony thing or whatever. I had all these like city tours and stuff booked to get the visa. But what happened was upon arrival, um, I was met by these guys who essentially are, there's something called in the hunting world called the Grand Slam, which you may know of. Uh, they want to shoot all of them, the mount, one of every one of the mountain goats, or whatever in the mm-hmm. Like there's 20 of them or something. And, and so people would buy this stuff on black, black market online. They'll buy one that's a picture of something in the wild. And the people would take them to shoot that one. So it's not really legal, obviously. And, but it's just something I guess rich hunters can do. 
And so these guys wanted a picture of one along the border. They wanted a photo of one because then they would sell the photo online to, you know, whoever wants to go shoot it. Bear with me. That sounds horrible, but I'll, I'll get back to that. So um, we met these guys at the airport. I met these guys. Instead of the whole tour that I had booked, instead, they put, we bought this uh, Jamal, which is the way that the kind of clothes that the people in northern Afghanistan wear looks like the Taliban. And they'd grown out my beard to be very dark and like dyed it very dark. Not that you would know from being up close, you know, who you're talking to, but just from a distance, so you wouldn't look suspicious. They put me in the back of this pickup truck and they covered it up with uh, these bags of grain or rice or something. And we had about a five hour drive down to the river and there was like three military checkpoints. But the family who did the driving knew, knew and been back and forth several times. So we didn't get checked. They pulled into their house. And then what we do is at 3, 3.30 in the morning, they had a rope across. There's a river that divides Tajikistan and Afghanistan. And they had a rope across the river where there's no bunkers and no landmines or anything like that. And so very early in the morning, freezing cold water. I mean, the whole thing was freezing cold. We would cut over to the Afghanistan side, go up into the mountains. We spent three, three, two nights, three days up there trying to get the Markhor. We did get some pictures of Markhors on that side. Uh, we ended up getting the best ones on the Tajikistan side, so we didn't even need to <laughs> really take the risk. But that's wildlife. You never know where you're going to get it. Got some really nice pictures of them and punchline to the whole thing when they took me back to, to fly back out. Um, I just didn't give them a picture, so they didn't get to sell it on the black market either. So um, suffice it to say, I am I'm certain to not be allowed in either one of those countries ever again for pictures that I've done. So now I just go on to other countries. But when was that? Which which year? Uh, I think was it 2010 or 2009 or 10 somewhere in there. Oh, I saw Markos the, the year afterwards in Pakistan, but that was also a. A, a bit of a place well, that would be gone, so yeah right that would be another yeah or Kashmir area like everywhere that I was aware that they that anybody could see them back then it yeah. was all you're going to a war-torn place no matter what yeah. um but what was interesting was I was asked to by the by the researcher that I knew to just take blind photos of the mountains all the way around and that he would scan them because they blend in very well in fact I have a picture of my website of this concept where we, we, we couldn't find them that way, the Markhor. But after he took those pictures, it's just like the rocks all the way around. He'd send them back and he'd have circles all over my picture saying that he's a Markhor all over really? the side. Wow. So oh, it, cool. it was really cool for him because, again, his father had done this kind of work before. So, um, you know, some decades earlier, up 50s or whenever they had done it before. So, um, so yeah, it was really it was a unique trip. The pictures on my website I'm very happy with. They came out pretty good. It's not you know, Nat Geo level, but considering my hands were shaking with cold and fear the entire time, it yeah. not pretty good, so. Fantastic. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you had an interesting run-in with a tiger um, in Indonesia, was it? Sumatra. Yeah. Sumatra, Sumatra, right. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I have had five close run-ins with them over the years. I'm having way more luck with them than than the animal that I'm usually trying to find for the Sumatran rhino, but I'm not having any hard time finding Sumatran tigers. So um, if you're interested, I could nearly get you killed as well. Um, at any rate, um, so yeah, I've had several run-ins. I've had them between the camp come up through a river where the next morning I wake up in between my hammock and my guide, you know, there's tracks right between us in a camp. Like they've, they've been very close several times. On this particular occasion, I'd staked out a really good mud wallow area and um, 
you set up me set me up in a hammock, tree hammock. It's kind of like ghillie suit kind of hammock, you know, it's, it's pretty well covered and and um, well hidden. And we use these lighters there because everyone smokes in Indonesia. And they use lighters to figure out that the wind is kind of going off to my right. And so we, we picked which way the hammock would be and where the trees would be to have this mud wallow without the scent carrying there. And the, they were gonna come back in three nights, so three full days there, then they were gonna come back. So they left me up in this hammock and probably um, seven meters, maybe 20 some feet off the ground here to get a good view of it and just to be theoretically safe off the ground. Um, and they all left, it took us till about I'd say about two o'clock that day to set, set this all up. I have got my camera on a remote. I have a camera on a remote down by the, by the mud wall. Got telephoto lens on me. Um, we've got some camera traps around as well. Listening close, watching the thermal. I'm waking, plan to wake up about every hour. So, you know, like sleep six hours and miss something. But 5.30 the first day, um, it's off to the right where I'm barely even watching. Something comes walking down through. I, my first thought was just a somber deer or something like that. It's moving quite fast and smooth. It comes around the base of the tree and my body just like locks up. This is uh, maybe maybe 15 meters max away from me. This is a tiger walking by. And I'm like, okay, don't move. Don't make any noise. He'll bugger off and it won't be a problem. And it did. And it kept going. And I was like, you know, once I sort of relaxed, I actually wrote down this little note because Martin, I got to tell Martin he's going to die. This is awesome. So a tiger. Um, and I was kind of, you know, it's no big deal because all night long you figure out oh, it'll be 10, 15 kilometers from there is no problem. Um, next day was fantastic with gibbons and cornbills and all the usual common stuff around there. And then that night, I there's a little bit of rain, fell asleep. I get up at probably 10 o'clock or so and hear a very distinct tiger sound, not good at impressions, but kind of a, a snarly sound again off to my right. And my mind is, again, my body just locks up like that natural fear of, I definitely know that was a tiger sound. Now I'm really worried because this is almost maybe 29, 30 hours later from the sighting. And it's still in this area. Like either it's, it's to me, it looked big enough because there's supposed to be smaller to be a male tiger. So it wouldn't make sense that it's, keeping track of cubs it's either on a kill or i don't know some reason that it's back again or since it's off to my right again it caught my scent and it's curious what that is or what i don't know why it's hanging around the second night now i'm not sleeping now i'm not moving i'm not drinking i'm not eating anything i'm not going to you know make any noise in the hammock i'm not going to go to the bathroom or anything because you know i just don't want to give away a location if it can't figure out where i'm at i spent that whole night pitch black night wondering exactly what am I going to hear next? Is there going to be claws coming up one of the two trees? Will I have a chance to slide? Should I move or slide? Or what the hell am I going to do if this thing actually comes up a tree at me? The next morning, I, like watching it get light out was the greatest relief ever. I slightly shift over to just like as quiet as possible watch. I didn't see anything for a while. About 9.17, if I recall, that next morning, same exact spot, exact opposite path. It comes walking right towards me, face towards me, cuts around the tree and goes up again to the right. Just, I mean, it's probably 10 meters away. It's so close. It has to be where my scent's carrying over. And now you're you're more than like basically two days into this and it's constantly over there, constantly circling around. Again, I, I can't eat anything. I don't want to open any wrappers. I don't want to drink water that I have to then, you know, go to the bathroom or anything. 
I can't sleep. I still have another 24 hours to go. It won't leave. It's there for several days, which makes, I don't know much about tigers, but I, yeah, I don't know what the reason it would be hanging around that long for. That's basically more than like 48 hours or something later, 44 hours or whatever it is. And uh, so I'm just panicked the whole time. Like not move. I hope the ghillie suit stuff is working. The guide said it looked good. The tiger hasn't found me yet. I was just freaking out again. Didn't sleep for another that whole night watching it get dark. Next morning, the guys finally get there and we go down to get, and I'm like, I, I'm not going to be able to hike far today. I haven't eaten in days. I haven't slept. I, I just have to get to a camp or where I can get a, a nap and some food and stuff. We went to get the camera traps and there were at least seven, maybe eight sets of tracks all in that same area, just off to my right, almost exactly where you'd figure the scent would carry. Um, so it didn't exactly attack. It didn't come up with trees or anything, but it, you know, I've been running this past Martin for PTSD for, for a few years now. I think it's happened in 2020. Weird thing about that is I fret more about that when I'm home and it's like around sunset and, you know, San Francisco or New York or something than I do. We're not, since I've been back in the woods over there, it's weird that I'm not worried so much about it. I still feel like it's so hard to see one or rare or something when I'm there, but it, it, it does still bother me at nighttime you know, here. And I was like, I gotta make sure which way the wind's blowing before I'd fall asleep tonight. And I'm assuming you never saw the uh, Sumatran rhino. I'm assuming, um, I'm assuming it didn't come in that that on that occasion. No. And, it, and that was the other thing. It's like, again, I, I know how wasted time this is. Like, I, because there's nothing else. If there's a, a tiger hanging around, I didn't see anything else. I didn't even see the gibbons after that. Um, if I never see a tiger again, it would definitely be too soon. I know it's blasphemy to a lot of people because everybody loves tigers, but no, after that story, I've got PTSD just listening to it. It's, um, <laughs> it reminds me, that's, I mean, that has to be a movie. You know, that open water about the shark attack? This is just the tiger version of open water. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hell of a story. Yeah, yeah it, it did feel like a horror story. Particularly, like I said, sunset, dusk, even till this day. It's like the thought that something is... It, because it didn't walk anywhere except where it could smell me, I, I have to assume, like, for that many days and that long... It had to be a curiosity is all I can hope. But. It wanted to eat you. It wanted to mate with you, but both are pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not sure which of those I'd prefer, honestly. But, uh, <laughs> um, certainly would have made the story much more interesting if it was the latter. But um, either way, I, uh, I'm glad that's over. Um, but I will be going back. So I, I still have to face down this fear and go to the zoo and just get used to it, I guess, or something. I don't know. It's counseling. Um, <laughs> You have actually seen a Sumatran rhino since that trip. And that, I mean, that has yeah. to be the story we want to hear about. Well, that is, I believe, my ninth trip. Um, if off the top of my head, I'm doing my math. Forgive me if I missed the trip one way or the other there. But um, nine trips on those dating more than dating back more than 10 or 15 years of effort on that. I've had several very close calls with them. I've had three good hearings of them. Mammalhearing.com, if there's such a website. Um, where I've had really close calls to those three times. Um, actually, with Martin once, he's heard one as well. Very close. We heard it. And there's no mistaking the sound of it for any other animal in the few areas that they're left in. Um, I've had them very, Sorry, very did, you, did you hear, when you said you heard them, did you actually hear them calling or did you hear just their noise walking through the forest? Well, the first occasion that I've heard one, um, I was in Wake Hobbes on that one, and I met the park rangers who go into the core area and do... Uh, patrols in the core area and back then you could get the Sumaxi to you know it's like the, the permit in Indonesia to go 
with the patrols and go patrol through the core area. And they've since stopped that a lot because I, I think they misrepresent a bit about what they say is the number of rhinos that are in an area and what the conservation status is, a whole lot of politics going on there. You have to have somebody staying guard, you know, like you take turns, like military shift kind of turns where someone has to stay awake all night. We've had, we've been attacked by elephants several times. Like they've stormed our camp and we have to make big bonfires if they come by. So we keep candles lit and we have a like, bonfire ready. And my job, so, so the first night, I think I covered from, you know, sunset to like 11 or something where we'd have to chase off the elephants and light the fires for them. And so, and my guide fell asleep. And again, just very distinct. I spent years with the Javan rhinos. So hearing, you know, in any rhino, they, they, they have a very distinct sound. You get used to the difference between the tapers, the Malayan tapers and the rhinos. There's just very distinct sounds. The, the rhinos are actually, forest rhinos are pretty loud and noisy when they are being careless and just grazing. They have distinct grazing sounds and make distinct walking sounds. Their breathing is distinct. And they have an amazing ability, from my experience, to on a dime, you know, to just on a like split second decision based on a threat or a smell they get to become very silent and just dart off through the forest like a, like a, you know, a deer or something very quietly. So I, I've gotten very good at being able to hear them. So that first time was just hearing it cut around the cup to the river, circle right around our camp, just this again, less than 10 meters away. And we were able to confirm the next morning at sunrise, just watch the tracks, just circle around. The second time I heard one with Martin, we heard it grazing as well um, in, in a different area in Sumatra. Third time, um, I did hear the mating call from a Sumatra rhino, which I have, have heard a lot more of when it's raining, is when you get the best chance of hearing both John and Rhino and Sumatra, in my experience, call a lot more when it rains. Um, usually sunset or early into the night is when they seem to do it the most. It's when I've heard the most calls from either of the forest rhinos. Um, so I've heard that fairly recently. That was, uh, actually that was the same trip with the tiger. <laughs> so that was 2020. And then in 2022, this last trip, setting up in a hammock on a very unlikely but hopeful trail uh, where you know, long shot odds that a rhino might come by. I actually have my, again, camera set up on a remote at, at a crossing path. I have a camera in my hands. And before anything else, my body reacts because that sound, like you just, if you've been around rhinos enough, even in the breeding center and in, in, in Wakambas or anywhere that you can hear them, you just get, you get very used to the, the very subtle difference of what a rhino sounds like compared to deers or anything else that's up there. They're, they're quite loud and they're, they're kind of clumpy as they walk in a certain way when they're when they're being a little bit careless and through the bushes. And, and I just knew right away, my heart starts racing. I'm trying to control my breathing and trying to make these decisions because unfortunately, again, we're, we're always very concerned about the scent and I have to know which of the 360 degrees where my scent is carrying. But in this case, it could have come from anywhere. And it just, it came from just the worst, the one bad angle that it was coming up from sort of off to my left behind me, right through where the scent would have been. And my camera is just in front. Oh God, this is killing me to even repeat the story. <laughs> uh, this is a losing sleep for a whole other reason over this one because it's coming up and I'm sitting, I have to, this decision, I've got, a, I've got a, a high end professional camera in one hand with the 200 on it, a 2.8 lens awesome camera. But I'm zipped in the hammock because of the bugs and mosquitoes. I've been there for days on this trail. I think it was up there four days at that point. And this is coming up beautiful sunlight coming right down through the trees to this area. And I'm like, 
I either move, shift my weight, make noise in the hammock, unzip the side, and try to get a picture of this thing, or it's not going to smell me. It's going to walk right in front of this camera that's, you know, five seconds in front of it, and I'm going to hit the button and get this picture. It's like going to be achievement of a lifetime. All five rhino species purely in the wild on my website, I did my dream for 30 years. I mean, we get tattoos on my body about this. This is amazing, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And I, I'm done. My hands are shaking again. My heart's racing. I'm like, stop breathing so heavy. Like you're holding still in a hammock. What are you doing? Like that and make the snap decision to just let it go to the camera seconds away. I look over this side to get a judge of where, where it's at. I see just the back and shoulders of it coming up from like this hill towards the trail. You can see the little dent, the, the coloration. Again, it's there. There's nothing else up there in, in the whole area where what else it could be. It gets right to where I assume my scent is. And again, it switches into that quiet mode, turns down left and just vanishes off into the trees. And um, I don't cry as a grown man very often, gentlemen. <laughs> like to think of myself as a tough guy that doesn't feel pain or anything, but Man, four times being close to them, that time actually seeing the back of one. And this is the difference, again, in our hobbies where to mammal watchers, you guys would, you know, take a check mark and, you know, consider it a win. But I, I, the picture, damn it, I got to I gotta go face tigers and go, you know, have several more missing, losing trips in a row before I ever have hopes of having that happen again. So, yeah, it's bittersweet, to say the least. Martin's far more excited. To me, it's it's more pain than anything. So it's just seconds more. If it had just gone a little bit further, I would have got that. But so yeah. you, it really is about that getting the photograph of it. It's it's not just clapping eyes on it. That's still, that's obviously not enough. Not enough. I've I've had two sightings of giant pandas in the wild. Um, you know, really good sightings. I got mountains of camera trap videos and pictures of those i still don't have what i either played with them in the breeding centers and stuff and i still that doesn't count i have mm -hmm. to get that picture it's about the photo collection it's very purist it's not normally what any any normal sane person that's in a memo watching would consider but again the goal is for me is i'm basically like i'm making an encyclopedia of all the coolest most amazing wildlife and yeah it's got to be the picture has to be completely in the wild, you know, as much as I can. I'll be doing it again. I'll be out there. <laughs> I'm off with the tigers again soon, as yeah. soon as I can. It's so interesting to me how everyone has their own little rules about yeah. what does count, what doesn't count, what what yeah. gives them joy, what doesn't give them joy. Right, <laughs> I know. What's pain, but... but as you say, any sane person listens to that and thinks, these guys are mad, but boy, oh I boy, know. you know, it can, it can just make your your day, your 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 year, your life, yeah, and does your wife ever come with you on these trips? What what does she make of your obsession? Um, I have the greatest wife on the planet over the fact that she hasn't left me yet. Um, <laughs> I I have gotten her mauled and attacked by animals several times. She has needed stitches and had life and death experiences of her own. Um, she's Chinese, and as I say, she has figured out some years ago that she married a dumb hillbilly. And because, and she said that to me at a moment of intense terror, <laughs> right after get another run in <laughs> with another animal. Um, we got a hot, I got a hot tip. Um, you guys probably know the story of this as well. In Tom and Nagaro, there was a, a Malayan taper that was hanging around a lodge there for, for maybe a year or so, uh, maybe longer. 
Yeah. Um, there used there is, I think, still like a, a platform you go out to deep in Tamanagara and you can stay. Come and hide. Yeah, that's a good place to see them. Yeah, here's a good place to see them. But there was one that was actually coming up into the camp for for like a year. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I heard that, I'm like, oh, I'm going. I, I don't care. I'll quit my job. I'll, I'll fake sick. I, you know, I'll tell them whatever. I don't care. I got to go. Like you know, to do this. And so she came with me on that one. And yeah, I mean, you, it, it's amazing because it, it confirmed repeatedly that this is wild. It's it goes off in the woods. It comes. It'll be gone for two weeks, and I'll come back. And I'm like, yeah, it's a wild animal in every way. And so I got got the pictures and videos. We were following them one day and walking. And what I've noticed about tapirs, because I got bit by them too. The, the Brazilian one nearly got um, bit by the mountain one, the the, uh, the mountain tapir. And actually, all of the tapers have either, <laughs> either tried to bite me or tried to bite her. So tapers are bitey is my general principle on them. What I've noticed about tapers is, and elephants are kind of this way too, is when they, when they associate an area to where it's okay for people to be, like at a campground or, or safari camp or something like that, they seem okay within that. Correct me if you guys have had different experiences. But as soon as a person crosses out into out of the area they expect you to be, they become much more aggressive animals, at least the tapers do. And so with her, I didn't know that. This is how we found that out. Um, we just left the camp slightly to get better pictures that looked like more wild. And she was just following along watching this thing. And as soon as it got at the edge, left the, like the camp area, man, it grabbed, it grabbed my camera, it grabbed my backpack, and it just became very aggressive. And I'm telling her to run. He grabbed, grabbed her and like nailed her to the ground really hard. And I, I'm very worried that I'm going to lose my wife to this animal. It's so much larger than her. So I, I took the tripod and I came running back at it and I was trying to hit it. And it came back after me and she just left and went away. When we came back, I found out she had to get, go to the hospital and get stitches and get her hand all sewn up in her arm. Um, but it's funny because everywhere we go in the camp, everyone's like, oh, it's happy. <laughs> I all knew this tapir was biting apparently everybody. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, we know that everybody has to go. Like this whole hospital's 90% of their business was dealing with this tapir, apparently. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, she, she more lost, lost it when I asked her to walk through rivers and things like that because, you know, the crocodiles and whatever. So she doesn't do that anymore. And finally... Um, we went to Glacier National Park here in the States. Um, around that area, I found a place where there was a pine martin around. And I didn't have a good pine martin picture. I'm like, wow, you know, we put out some marshmallows and this thing will come back around. And so, you know, I said, well, there's a right by a river. Why don't you go up that side of the river and set up the camera over there and pick a good spot? And I'll put marshmallows over this side because it had eaten the marshmallows that were there. And when she went up, unfortunately, putting marshmallows out when the bears are just coming out of hibernation, I have learned from this day is a bad idea also because it just attracted a really big black bear <laughs> up the side of the river that I just sent my, my, my beautiful little wife over to. And so, you know, there's some screaming sounds and, um, I, you know, I get my job done because proper mammal watcher as I would. <laughs> and they look back and my wife has been chased into the river by a black bear that's like swinging at her with its paws. Oh, wow. She's soaking wet up to the waist. And this is when she decided I was a dumb hillbilly. And, um, so we made it back to the car on our side of the river. It's trying to find a log to come across the river. We get back to the car and she's decided that she's not going with me on any more trips. So I have traveled with her, but she stopped doing it after the bear thing. So now I can't think why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I just do this without her. Um, that said, in my defense, the next time I took a trip, she got bit by a dog at her work. So I'm not sure this is all me, but um, so Chris, what's uh, what's next? Uh, what are your 
next really big targets or is there, is there one main target that you still feel that you really have to get? I, I am prioritizing now, in particular, four animals that are really high priority for me. I have an excellent lead on giant pangolin. John, I know you got yours in Gabon, I believe, a couple of years ago. That's a high priority. Um, I still can't believe, God, 12, 15 trips later, I still need a picture, a really good picture of a giant panda, something better than I've gotten before. So I do have them, but I need to get better. Um, of course, I will probably go to my grave one way or another, trying to get the Sumatran rhino. And the other thing is I've had now a really good trip for pygmy hippo. Um, John, I think he's had a sighting, I think on thermal, if I heard correctly on that, um, but I need a really good picture of one. So again, up and down rivers and areas where they're at for God knows how many months to get that one. Those are the really tough ones. I've got a lot of easy trips that once any of those work out, I can just clean up, you know, just go get a few easy things. I still don't have a good aardvark picture and a few other easy ones. Um, however, I think what's really interesting to, to maybe add to this conversation is Martin and I have come up with a list of things that are generally considered these days to just fully be impossible, or there's really no lead that we've been able to find. And I'd love to hear from you guys if you hear otherwise that I have on my list. I've been thinking for a long time, I would love to get a picture of a giant squid. I know that's an insane project, but they're off the coast of California here, you know, like sinking a camera and building the equipment and sitting on a boat with, with bottles of wine every night isn't exactly hell, you know? And, you know, I, I mean, however they managed to do that with like these little glowing blue lights under there that is like attracts the fish that they like to eat. And they, you know, you can see the Discovery Channel with submarines managed to actually get great pictures of them. All I need to do is get the camera down there and and, and get them out. So some of these things that are just, you know, Martin's the same thing, drinking on a boat. He says, I don't think you'll get this picture, but he'll sit and drink with me on a boat. So. We may be doing something like that, trying to come up with a plan for that as well. So, um, you know, pink fairy armadillos. The Sayola was just discovered when I first started doing this. I've never gotten a good lead. I've talked to the same guys that, you know, that are supposed to, you know, working the WF and doing that. But, you know, chances of that are so, so low. And it's landmines and problems in there as well. I'd take the risk, but, I, you know, it just doesn't seem to be a good lead on those. So these are things that are on my list, but I've had to sort of write them off as, I mean, if there ever comes a way, I'm sure, I'm sure everyone on this call and most of the people listening to your podcast will all be waiting in line and fighting with each other to get on a, a list to go on any one of those tours. So I keep them there. I Martin keeps them there. I'm sure you guys do as well. If anything ever comes up on them, we'll, we'll be bumping into each other out in the woods somewhere. 200 years ago, let's say, or 300 years ago or something, there would have been you know, thousands of any of these animals, you know, that were readily available to see if you were in that area. And they wouldn't even have been all that shy. Like the, the, the Sumatra and I were talking about, if you go back enough thousands of years there, there's an argument to be made, they were a plains animal. If you'd have seen them, you know, in open fields and things back then, people would have been common to see this. But it, the problem is you, well, there weren't cameras, but there also weren't, there's no airplanes or, you know, a boat trip there would have taken it eight months or something. So you couldn't do it. If you take the flip side argument and go 200, 300 years into the future, I fear, yes, you'll be able to travel anywhere very fast and easy, but there will be no point. <laughs> like, I'm not sure most of the things we're even talking about is rare stuff that I don't even know what conservation, if any, are, is there is to, to help Malayan tapers, for example. I, I, there, how many are even left and where are they being poached? And a lot of these animals, I don't know if, you know, we're losing big things. The vaquita hangs by a thread. I mean, a lot of big animals are 
that this, the, they may not have Sumatran rhino in a few centuries. I mean, who knows? So you get this tiny window of time where we can travel and possibly see some of these things. I don't want to fake this at all. I, I, I don't know if in the future anyone will care. To this day, I'm brokenhearted seeing the last videos from the Hubbard Zoo of the Tasmanian tiger or, you know, the thylacine. Yeah. If I can take these pictures and show this is what a person living at this time could honestly, with, with no lies, no tricks, go see, explain to the best I can of however I could get this picture. This is a, a very sincere, honest effort to document that, nothing more. And I, I don't think I'm important in any way, or I, so I don't post this stuff. I don't even post it on Instagram. I don't advertise it all. I wouldn't have posted trip reports on their site or anything because I don't think I matter all that much. I don't even advertise my own site on, on Google search or anything. It's just to put this collection together at the end of my days, submit it to, to as a book to the Library of Congress or something and say, you could, this is the era that the last era people had to do something like this and see these things. It's it, 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 it's potentially a very, very sad time capsule you're building if what you say does happen, or perhaps it's it'll be an inspiration and a turning point. But I think it's 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 a really yeah, it's a very poignant idea to show what what we in our our generation, we do probably live at the best ever time to see the world's biodiversity because of the reasons you said. And if one person's life has documented so much, it'll be a it'll be a lesson for other generations of what they've lost. I have hope. I mean, you have to. It's it's weird to see the transition in 30 years of doing this, to see the world change. Several locations on my website that I went to 30 years ago are gone. I mean, the whole area and everything I photographed, every animal there is dead and gone. Mm. But it's also not even about extinction. I mean, 30 years, if you look at the percentage drop in population of orangutans or you know the, the sheer density of animals we've wiped out in just 30 years or 50 years, the yeah. state I grew up in, I'm 50 now, 50 years ago, the state that I grew up in, you would drive from city to city through, you know, countryside. Today, it's the massive suburbs. You know, we've redirected waterways, paved roads across routes that animals needed to migrate and things. I think what you're doing and what your website, Memo Watching, and bringing this many new faces and new people interested in this, redirecting more finance through conservation, making local people, this is an age old argument that tourism is going to help save a lot of these animals. We've seen it happen. I mean, red pandas, I actually had pictures uh, got purchased and public published by Nat Geo because of Martin's, some of the work in, that's happening with the red pandas in Nepal in that case, because it, it translates into conservation to put more tourists in an area and let the villagers see the reason between not taking this bamboo, not cutting down the trees that they need and moving up and down the hill slightly to, you know, there, there's good in all of this. I just don't think it's realistic to say that we're every single animal in every single species is savable at this point. I just don't think it is. So mammal watchers in the future will find it much easier in some ways. You already go to private parks and to see a leopard in the early nineties was to see a snow leopard in the 90s, was a, this was a ghost. You didn't. It's just that, no, that was on the impossible list. I don't know. I, I have hope, but I'm, I'm also somewhat a bit depressed by some of it. So. Yeah, very true. Chris, thank you um, so much. What, a, what an extraordinary life you've, you've, I wouldn't say you've had, you are living. Um, and hopefully for many years longer, hopefully a tiger or a, 
a bear or an angry tape here doesn't put an end to it too soon. Uh, thanks for sharing those stories and good luck on your quest for this time capsule of the biodiversity in the 21st century. What a great, great vision and what a great passion you have. Thank you. Yeah. And best of luck with your uh, four big target species. I, I hope that they all, uh, I hope they all come along without uh, too much endeavor. Well, gentlemen, this has been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you as well. And if I am ever killed by a tiger, don't feel bad. I went out doing what I love. It was fine. <laughs> it was quick, too, so it was all right. <laughs> That's a key point, isn't it? <laughs> so thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast.